The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Sal Girard is an actor and singer who studied at the Actors Conservatory under the tutelage of Brian Siren and Henry Bannister. He trained in singing with Dot Mendoza and dance with Keith Bain. Sal's theatre credits include Jump for Jordan, Miss Julie, Les Enfants du Paradis, The Rise and Fall of Little Voice, Salome, My Son the Lawyer is Drowning, Alex and Eve, and Grace Under Pressure. Musical theatre forays include Guys and Dolls, Aladdin, Grease, Sunset Boulevard, and My Fair Lady. Sal originated the role of Riff Raff in Australia in Harry and Miller's celebrated production of The Rocky Horror Show. Sal has navigated a rich variety of theatrical experience on stage and behind the scenes. He generously charts his career and provides unique insight of a wondrous profession in a challenging industry in this fascinating two-episode conversation of The Stages Podcast. Good. Give us a sound check. Sound check. That's all you need to say something. This is me saying something. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Peter. Hello, Sal. <coughs> Sal yeah. Um yeah. At last we meet. This is fantastic. Yeah. Well, it is. It is. Uh, it's lovely to meet. You're back on the stage again soon. <laughs> yeah, I have to laugh and pinch myself a bit about that because, uh, you know, yeah, every time you do a show these days, you think, oh, well, that's the last one. That's the last one. And I did a tour, a national tour of... Um, Grace Under Pressure, uh, which was this verbatim theatre piece, and uh, I finished that earlier this year, and I thought, oh, that's it, you know, and then uh, out of the blue came this offer, and I thought, while I live, I work, I guess, you know, so, yeah. So nice work if you can get it. Fabulous old musical, based on... Well, it's a new musical, actually, I think. Well, it is. Using a, a fabulous old score. Yeah. Fabulous old Gershwin score, wonderful songs in it, yes. You know, and it's uh, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl in the end, you know. And uh, 
it, it should be a lot of fun. Looking through the script, I still get all those same little uh, adrenaline rushes and nerves that I did, I think, when I was doing it 40 years ago, you know. Are you playing a, an elder statesman of sorts? or I am. I'm yeah. playing Senator Max Evergreen, who's uh, not only just a senator, he's about to run for the Senate again, and it's during a period uh, when uh, there were prohibition, a lot of bootleggers around, and he wanted to make sure he was appearing to um, clear up all the bootlegging around town, you know, keep his reputation intact. He also happens to be a reverend, and um, yeah, he's a he's a very um, very respectable sort of uh, character who's brought undone by an old lover later on in the piece, which is uh, quite delightful. <laughs> <laughs> as, so, as most senators yes. usually are. So his pompousness gets pricked, so to speak, and uh, yeah, we find out uh, that he's had a bit of a shady past. Tell me about uh, Grace Under Pressure, because performing in a verbatim play, I imagine it'd be quite difficult. It's because uh, you are learning the the uh, vocal tics of the of the characters you're portraying, and Ab- and, abs- and that's usually very wordy. Absolutely, they are, and um, and you're right. All the all, all the tics are there. You know, it's uh, all the ums and ahs, and uh, you have to bring all of that authenticity to those characters, and as an actor you're not imposing yourself on those roles at all you're you're a mouthpiece and you're trying to deliver that dialogue their their experiences really uh, with with uh, genuine you know authenticity and integrity and um, it, it it's a responsibility and it's a it's a challenge you know because you're working within a very narrow um, uh, spectrum, a creative spectrum, as opposed to when you're playing a character in a play or a musical, and you can explore things. But uh, and, and it's really interesting when you hit the truth chord of being able to tell those stories so that they're resonating with people. It it really works, and you feel it, and they feel it. So, it's it, it's a lovely. Uh, it was a lovely experience, and a very interesting style of theatre for me to do. Um, I'd never quite done anything quite like that before. It's a theatrical form which uh, relies on an authenticity. Yes. To the um, well, that it is theatrical verbatim theatre, but it's it's perhaps not as theatrical as we would. Imagine no, and 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 you find that you you can't over. I mean, even though this, a lot of the stories are dramatic, they're, they're, like this was all about people who worked in the uh, medical industry. You know, who were um, everything right through from specialists to um, uh, nurses and um, um, uh, hospital workers. Um, uh, the, the whole gamut and their experiences of the sort of pressures that they work under um, from you know long hours and also the pressures they work under for uh, a, you know sexual harassment that goes on in the, the workplace um, and just 
generally the the whole um, the whole traumatic nature of that that work you know they're they're dealing with life and death every day every single day and people come in expecting to be healed expecting to be saved you know so the expectation is is, is enormous so uh, the, the sort of pressure that are on those people are quite tremendous and some of the stories are quite dramatic but you cannot make them overly dramatic as an actor you have to tell their story and uh, and and keep it as I said as authentic as possible so people feel like they forget about you you get out of the way of it and they're just listening to that story being told by a real person yeah you know, and that's key to it now we're recording this uh, this conversation uh, in your lovely home in iconic Bondi. <laughs> yes, well, I love Bondi because it sort of keeps you young, you know. Uh, there's lots of lovely walks around the beach, and uh, Bondi has a, a lovely energy about it. You know, lots of visitors come here, lots of backpackers come here, lots of young people are around, but there's also that solid base of community old style community and yeah. you feel it very much in this street that i live in you know people look out for each other they care for each other they're offering advice on how to grow your plants you know people people know what's going on with everybody they ever see a ambulance in this street there's heightened concern about who's that ambulance visiting you know unfortunately we used to have this fabulous uh, organic bakery just down on the corner here, and it was an integral part of the community. People would come from all over the eastern suburbs to get their breads and croissants and cakes, and and uh, the, the owner just had a sudden heart attack uh, and uh, passed away, and and now the uh, the bakery's gone, and and it's it's sad when that happens in a in a, in a community because it. Uh, it affected everybody, and and that was borne out by all the messages that people put on the windows down there. They were all writing little post-it notes and messages saying, "We miss you. We love you. Your bread was the best. You know, please, somebody else open up a another similar place here. You know." And uh, your neighbour's going to town with that with an axe. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. I, That's okay. Sh- should I close the door? Oh no, no, it's okay. But um, this is podcasting. This is uh, authentic listening. Authentic listening, right? <laughs> right. Yes, of course. So we've set the scene for the listener, which is great. And also, your strip curtain is going, which is wonderful as well. Well, you, it must be like a theatrical entrance every morning. Well, it, it is a bit. I mean, we wanted something like that. Joe said, "Wouldn't it be lovely to get one of those old Greek cafe strip curtains?" You know, and. Uh, which was primarily to keep the flies out. Uh, but we have these noisy, pestilent minor birds who come around here. Yeah. And they'll just hop in here and think, oh, you know, tomato and an apple and a peck on whatever else is going around, you know. It's all they come into the kitchen. Oh, they pop right in right, here, right, yes. Right. And then, of course, when you discover them, they just shit everywhere. And, of course, <laughs> you, know, you have to get them out. So it works as a, a little bit of a deterrent for them as well. But we quite 
blanket. Strip curtain just flying around there. So did you grow up in Sydney? Uh, no. I, um, I was born in Sydney. And then when, my, um, when I was about four years old, my parents separated. And I went to live with my mother's family in a little place called Capity. It was between Lithgow and Mudgee, a little village town. Because my grandfather on my mother's side... Uh, he came out to Australia during the 1890s as a 15-year-old boy and um, discovered a bit of gold out west, the other side of Bathurst, and then um, bought himself a horse and dray and he used to travel to Sydney and get supplies and take them back to Bathurst. And then he, uh, he, came, he decided he wanted to open a little general store and he realised that Capity was very central to all these places where all these major mines were being opened up, like Candos and Ralstone and Cullen Bullen and Ben Bullen and Glenn Davis and all these places were having mines opened up of one form or the other, whether they were coal or shale or cement works or whatever. And he thought, oh, Capity would be a nice little place. So he did. He opened up a general store in Capity. And he... Um, he had the butcher shop and the general store and the post office and the whole lot. It was a one-stop one shop there for quite a while. And uh, so that was the, the history there. So my mum went back to live with her parents there and I, that's where I grew up, a little place called Capity. Did you have much to do with your dad at that time? No, he, he was living in Sydney. I used to via a, a, a custody case uh, uh, um, decision I used to spend half the holidays with him and he lived in Elizabeth Bay and then I'd um, spend all the schooling period with my mum going to Capity Public School which had about 30 kids in the whole school I think I had 5 kids in my class and from there I uh, uh, so I grew up in a little... Uh, it was lovely growing up in the country. I had a pony, I had all this stuff, you know. And, uh, but when I came down to uh, go to boarding school in Sydney, that, uh, that was a real revelation. I ended up at Riverview and uh, like 125 kids in my class or something. And, and that was the first time I ever experienced... Uh, well, I ever became aware of the fact that I, uh, of my ethnic background, you know, because I was born in Australia to Lebanese and, and uh, French uh, grandparents and grandparents. And, uh, and then when I went to Riverview, I, I, I really um, I, uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't that comfortable initially because I just felt that I wasn't being accepted and people were, I was being called Wog and Dago and, you know. Would there have been a big uh, intake of um, European boys at the school at that time, Italian and Greek backgrounds? There are, no, very, very few. There, 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 were, there were a lot of Greeks and Italians in Australia at that yeah. time, the migrants who were here, but they couldn't afford to send their kids to Riverview. And uh, the only reason why I got there is because I, I got a state scholarship and uh, my mum was very Catholic. So through the local 
priest who was based in a little town called Portland, he said, look, this boy needs to have a good Catholic education. And, uh, and they said, well, get him to sit for the state bursary and then he can come down and do our entrance exam. So I did the state bursary and I got that, uh, which meant I could have gone to Sydney High School free of charge at that stage. That's what it entitled me to. But he pushed for Riverview and um, and they said, oh, look, we'll acknowledge the state birthday and you just have to pay for his, uh, his boarding. So that's the conditions under which I went to Riverview and then, um, and I passed the entrance exam. Uh, Boarding yeah. can be a frightful experience for. Uh... It it was, you know, you you really are a a small pea in the pod, you know, like and uh, kids from all walks of life and kids with a lot of money, you know, whose parents have got a lot of money, who have grown up in very privileged uh, um, families. They they they're pretty cruel, actually. It was yeah, pretty kids pretty, can be pretty tough devilish, time. Yeah. And it took me a while to find my feet there, but I did find, I did end up getting, uh, making some wonderful friendships there. And I was only a year ahead of Nick Enright. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, did you know Nick then? As a, yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. I, I knew his, his brother as well, uh, Ernie Enright. And uh, Nick Griner was in my year review, went on to become Premier. Uh, yeah, it was a, an interesting time. So the, the um, artistic influences in your childhood, when did they start to emerge? Was this at a, a high school with, with school drama? And no, they, they, they were almost suppressed there. I, I wouldn't dare get out and do anything there, you know. But I, I discovered I could sing when I was just a kid. And uh, where that all came from was that um, I just, we had a, a stack of records when I was a kid growing up, you know, the Frank Sinatra's, Bing Crosby, Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, you know, all that style of music. And uh, I wasn't really into musical theatre music at all. That wasn't uh, that wasn't uh, in in my scope of what was available to me. Even though we'd go and see those movie musicals like like Kismet and uh, and uh, those sort of things. My mum would never resist a, a movie musical or pajama game or whatever. Right, all Rogers and Hammerstein. Rogers and Hammerstein and South Pacific. Yes, we'd go and see all those and, and love them. And my mum loved them. And, um, and when we used to come down to Sydney for Christmas and stay with my, one of my aunties, or uh, we'd always go to the Tivoli uh, and see the Panto there. You know, and that was always a, such a highlight. You know to see uh, uh, all that going on, so I was I was, I was quite taken from it. But I we used to shop in Mudgee uh, often, sometimes in Lithgow. But you'd go and do your big shop in Mudgee once a week, and and they had this uh, talent quest on, and I could always sing from being a kid. I used to sing along with you know all sorts of different songs, you know, and and the pop songs of those days, you know, like. Pat Boone and um, 
Doris Day songs and that. This is all... These vocalists are being your singing teacher. You're really singing well, teachers. Well, they, they were they were in a way, and and they had this talent quest up there. Uh, it was in a, uh, an area, Mudgee, uh, looking for kids for Desmond Testa's Channel Nine Pins, which was a pretty popular kids show in those days. So I I went into this talent quest and. Uh, I was one of two, I was, there was a boy and a girl who were winners and myself and this other girl and we ended up uh, being invited to come down to Sydney to be on Channel Nine Pins television show. So I did that, that was a little, um, that was a little drop in the ocean that, that sort of uh, got me very excited. Uh, that must have been in the, early 50s probably yeah around about 53 54 I wasn't very old so I, I, I did that and then uh, and I thought oh that that's fabulous so everybody in our family and extended family knew I could sing so they used to get me to sing a song you know and uh, I, I I used to really enjoy doing that but but I think that the pantos was was the thing that really where I thought you could actually be on stage performing was was something pretty exciting. And uh, did, did you take that further and think that uh, this is a, a perhaps a career aspiration that, that you would like to be a? I actor? wanted to be a singer. Right. I definitely wanted to be a singer. You know, like look, I went um, all through review. I hardly did anything, and then right in our final year, I did get up and sing a song. And. Uh, Everybody said, "What? Well, you got a good voice, mate. You know, you should do something about that." But uh, being an only child, um, I, I, I went into law, and I was working at the Attorney General's Department, Deputy Crown Solicitor's Office, in Phillips Street in Sydney, and uh, studying law part time, five year course. And it was during that time that, through a friend, I found out they were auditioning for. A, guy, a fellow student who was doing law, this guy Phil Sansoni, he said, oh, look, um, my brother-in-law has a little trio and they're looking for a singer. He said, why don't you go along and have a go? And I did. So anyway, I got the job of being a, a singer. And, you know, you, we used to sing, you know, Call Me, Girl From Ipanema, all that sort of cool stuff at that time. And... Uh, and we used to play at a little place called Harpoon Harry's down in um, Thursday and Friday nights down in uh, Wynyard. And so that was my introduction to working professionally as a, as a singer. And I did want to just be a singer. And I used to watch all those shows like the Dean Martin show and, you know, uh, and the Jackie Gleason show and um, Jack Benny and... Um, what was his name, uh, Ed Sullivan, and I just thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be on a show like that, yeah. singing songs, yeah. you know. And that, that, that's where I was, I was headed. And then through that, one night in came uh, Dave Fennell, who was a piano player. He was doing some gigs with Marlene Atchison at that time, who was doing bandstand and, and a few other... Um, things and a lovely girl lovely singer and I got to know her and she said oh look Sal she said you got a lovely voice but have you ever thought of taking some singing lessons and I said oh, not really you know 
And she said, look, I've got somebody uh, who is fantastic, Dot Mendoza. And uh, she said, why don't I have a chat to her and tell her about you and see if she'd be interested in taking you on. So I did. And lo and behold, I, I ended up being coming one of Dot's students. At that time, she was teaching a lot of the kids from NIDA. And she didn't have anybody quite like me there. Uh, you know, and I was a crooner. I was a jazz singing crooner, you know, who thought this is all I want to do. And then Dot said, look, we're going to, you, you won't lose that. She said, in fact, what we're going to do is turn you into a singer, you know. And she used to teach the bel canto method you know, diction, projection, all these things, intervals, fabulous lessons, hers, quite unique, you know, created them all herself. And um, and so I became a, one of her star pupils. And, you know, when I started singing um, Soliloquy from Carousel, which was one of the things I worked on with her and a few other things, she said, look, she said, you could do theatre musicals. I said, Oh, I said, I've never thought of that. She said, well, think about it. She said, there's, there's a career for you. She said, you. she said, you're not the classic theatrical singer, she said, but you have a quality in your voice, she said, that people will love, you know. And I thought, mm, okay. Because she'd been a rehearsal pianist with J.C. Williamson's. She had been, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she had. And she used to write those shows and write a lot of the songs for... Uh, a lot of those reviews that used to go on at the Philip Theatre. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. So... Uh, I, I was looking into her. I'd heard all about Dot Mendoza, right. but she also um, was employed as a, a staff pianist with 3XY and compared Dot Mendoza at home. Right. And also a children's show with Frank Thring. She did. <laughs> well, her and Frank were great mates. Right, you know? right. And like when Frank... Um, yeah, and whenever Frank came up to Sydney, he would be at her place sitting there like, like, you know, King... King Tut, King, King Farouk, Tut, King yes, Barnes. you know, with all these dangles and bangles and everything, and he'd say, Dotty, darling, Dotty, you know, you know, what's on the menu for tonight, Dotty? Have we got another small twinge of that beautiful whiskey dotty you know i mean that, that was the way he always carried but he used to call it dotty and you know and all those places like the bull and bush and you know they all they all love dot and they, she used to write the odd musical number for them you know uh and barry creighton you know barry'd come to dot and say i've got an idea can you put some music to it you know and uh they, they were writing satirical sort of um, political satire and that sort of thing in those days. Gordon Chater. Gordon Chater was another great friend of hers. Yeah. So I got to meet a lot of these people through Dot, and she was really my mentor. And 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 it just so happens, you know, sliding door moments, they just steer you in one direction that you thought you might never go. And I was at Dot's one day for doing a singing lesson. She got a call from um, Hilary Linstead saying we're in the middle of casting this musical called Grease, right, which I'd never heard of. And she said, Dot, have you got anybody there that, 
you know, that you're teaching who you think might be suitable, who could sing a rock song and has got a good voice, good rock tenor voice. And Dot said, I've got a boy standing right here next to me now who can do that. And she said, well, send him along, you know. And so the next thing I know, I'm heading down to uh, the capital to audition for Greece. And, and I... Uh, I ran through a number with Dot. She said, come on, what's a rock song you know? And I said, oh, I don't know. I said, I know Kansas City. So I, I <laughs> and she said, okay, Kansas City. She said, uh, you know, we, she said, play a little bit. And she started playing along with me. She said, that's fine. She said, well, go along there and tell me you can do Kansas City. And I, I did have some sheet music for it because that was one thing I used to do. I used to buy a lot of sheet music. And a lot of those little books, those boomerang song books, which would have the lyrics in it of what was on the charts at that time, the pop songs at that period. So I, um, I, I went and got the, the, the music, the sheet music, and I went down to the Capitol and I auditioned. And uh, the director was this American guy called John, John Banks, or Jonathan Banks. He had this beanie on his hat and he just looked, bit of beard and he's walking around and saying do it like this he said he said yeah 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 I like the way you sang that song and then he said to me he said listen man and he came right up to me and he says I want you to do that song again he said but he said can you do it like you got ants in your pants he said like <laughs> really move around really shake it up for me and, and he said to the pianist, can you shake it up a bit? He said, so he can, you know. And, I, and so I did. So I got out there and I was singing, you know. <laughs> you know, I'm going to Kansas City. Kansas City, here I come. Oh, yeah. You know, and all this sort of shit, you know. Anyway, he said, you're in. You're in. He said, sign that boy up, he said. It was like a scene out of a Hollywood movie, honestly. <laughs> but he was so American. And... Uh, he said, sign that boy up. So anyway, the next thing I know, I'm casting Grease as Sonny LaTerry. And it's a shock. It's like, it's, it's like this huge whack over the head of what's going on, you know, because here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm four years into my um, you know, le legal studies. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I've been able to bum around for a whole year because I failed one... Um, fourth year subject which I couldn't carry into fifth year and so I was just bumming around doing one subject for that whole year so I had a lot of time to do singing lessons and, and, and acting classes go to do all that sort of stuff and, and I'm a only child what am I going to do and I've been offered this role and the rehearsals are in Melbourne in two weeks so I walk all the way back from the Capitol Theatre back to Dot Mendoza's and I say, Dot, what am I doing? What am I going to do? You know, I think, you know, I'm being cast in this show. She said, I know, they just call me. She said, congratulations. She said, well, look, she said, I know you want to do your law. She said, and I know you've got a law career and it's important to your mother. She said, but it's your life, so she said. And sometimes you only get one chance at these things, she said, you're young enough, she said, to just leap off, you know, into this 
into show business and if it doesn't work out, you know, she said, you can always go back to your law. She said, but you just never know. It might be what you really want to do. You've got to give yourself that one chance because it's only one life, you know. So with all that information, advice ringing in my head, I decided to do it. But I had to lie to my mother and say, look, it's, uh, you know, I can come back to my job and everything. And fortunately I could because when I told them at work, the Deputy Crown Solicitor got me in, who, who I knew quite well at that time, a guy called Frank Marnie. And he said, so don't throw away your career, he said, on all this stuff, he says, you know. And then I said, look, it's something I really want to do. He said, well, look, if you really want to do it, go and get it out of your system. He said, I'll give you 12 months leave without pay. He said, signed off now. He said, uh, so go and get it out of your system. He said, we'll see you sometime in the next 12 months. Well, uh, off I went down to Melbourne. I told my mum, she felt a little apprehensive, but she thought, oh, well, at least he can come back, you know. And she saw the official 12 months leave without pay and all that sort of stuff. So I go off to Melbourne, do Greece. Greece has five weeks of rehearsals and ran for, I think, five or six weeks and that was it. Boom, bang, no show. <laughs> I'm down in Melbourne, out of work, thinking, what next, you know? And I thought, do I go back to Sydney with my tail between my legs and all these people who said, ah, you know, you shouldn't have left the thing, blah, 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 you know, heading off into showbiz and all that, you know, fool's gold. But I, um, I stayed in Melbourne. I've become good, very good friends with um, this Ron Challoner and Denise Drysdale. And, um, yes, well, we should talk about it. it's quite an illustrious company of, of Greeks that who you were working with for your first show. Well, it it was it was an amazing company, and as I said, it, it did. It had Rod Chal Rod Challoner, uh, Ron Challoner. Um, Denise Drysdale, first uh, theatre musical for her because she was known as Ding Dong in those days and she'd come through, she was um, a disco cage dancer for a right. while. Right. <laughs> John Dietrich. John Dietrich, uh, Tina Bursell, Ros Spears, uh, Natalie Mosca. John McTiernan. Yeah, John McTiernan, Gary Down, produced by Harry and Miller. And... And it, was, it would have ended up being directed by Jim Sharman, except Jim was over in uh, England now. He was in great demand to directing Superstar over there. And, um, and I think he directed it also in the States. So, you know, between Hare and Superstar, Jim, Jim was sort of madly in work all, pretty much all the time because he was the original director of Hare as well. And Jonathan Banks came out to Australia originally to direct the New Zealand production of uh, Hair. And Harry liked what he did with it, so then he offered him Greece. He, he's the same Jonathan Banks who's in uh, Breaking Bad and uh, Better Call Saul. He went oh, on really? an amazing career. Yes. Yeah, wow, wow, wow. Um, Plays Mike. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, that's him. He was looking for the dark side of the, the show as well in, in those days. And uh, 
It's like 1971. The movie didn't come out until 1976, I think. 77, around that time. So he was looking for the dark side in these gangs and the danger and all of that and the hierarchy and, you know, how it all worked and the girls and which girls guys wanted to be with and all that sort of stuff. So he he did a lot of work on all of that. and, And I think the problem was it was a great production. It had so many talented people in it and it really was um, a fabulous show. I think Mel, if it had it opened in Sydney, I think it might have been, might have had a better chance of being a success. Because Melbourne was a little conservative at that stage and I think trying to revisit that period of the 50s with the leather jackets and the pointy-toe shoes and the grease-back hair. It was a bit of an ugly period, you know. And and without having all that lovely nostalgic edge around it, which the movie ended up having, you know, and they softened down the movie enormously from the original stage show, it, 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 it just didn't take. The audiences just didn't come. And uh, so we were closed out of work and I remember um, David Atkins uh, used to live in Greensboro right so he always used to stay at my place in South Yarra when we were doing matinees rather than having to you know the, the night travel before back. the matinees rather than travel all that way and do the matinee you know travel home and then have a travel back so we're, we're pretty good mates in those days and uh, I remember sitting up the back of the theatre uh, the old Metro Theatre in Burke Street, watching them tear down the set with him and uh, Kit Pate, who was doing God, uh, Godspell at that time at the at the play box, and David was just the tears were just pour, pouring down his face as he watched them tearing down the set and just you know uh, bumping out the whole thing. It's a show that he would return to many years later as uh, director. I think he directed that production at the Footbridge with that's, Guy Pearce. That's right, he did, and and I think I think it was important that he did that. You know, having had that experience, because he played duty. So where do you go now? No work. I was just looking for work as a singer down there, and I said to Denise because Denise, Denise had used to work at the Top Cat Club in uh, in Burke Street which was just pretty much opposite, over the road from... Uh, but she wasn't working there now. She'd had some other work. And um, and I said, look, I said, I'll, I'll, I'm just looking for some work as a singer. I said to her, do you know anybody there? And, and we became mates, her and I, and Ron Chalner and David Atkins were all hanging around together. And, and, and she said, look, uh, I had to get out of my place in South Yarra. I couldn't stay there any longer. I didn't have the money. And... Um, and she said, oh, look, she said, would you like to do a bit of work at my mum's place? And I said, what, what's your mum do? She said, she's got, she runs a chook bar in Richmond. And it was Nancy's chook bar in Richmond. <laughs> Nancy was her mum. And she was a real character, real showbiz type, you know. Loved the makeup and everything. Very glam dresser. And... Uh, and so I went over there and I met her mum and it was instant love. She, her mum was just 
larger-than-life character who ran this chook bar in Richmond and people would come from all over the place because in those days, that was one of the earliest rotisserie chook bars in Melbourne, you know. So people were coming all over the place, coming from everywhere to get these uh, uh, rotisserie roasted chickens from Nancy's chook bar. So I used to work in the chook bar a couple of days a week and Denise had moved out and she had a flat in the garage out the back, right? that they'd set up as a flat for her. So I was staying in her old flat out the back and working a couple of days in the chook bar and not paying any rent, you know, which which paid off the thing. And um, and then uh, Ron Challoner said to me one day, he said, oh, I've just got an audition for, for Godspell. He said, they're recasting, you know. He said, it's for the rest of the Melbourne season and uh, New Zealand tour. He said, why don't you come and audition and I said oh I'd, I didn't have any real contacts at that stage or an agent so he just said uh, look he said I'll see if I can get you an audition so he spoke to somebody um, I think it was um, Betty Pounder at the time so said, it was a Williamson production no 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 it was no. Uh, Ken Brodziak right Ken Brodziak did the original Godspell down in Melbourne and it was so successful he ended up opening a separate production in Sydney. So anyway, uh, I went along and I auditioned. Uh, there, were only, um, there were only three or four roles that they were re-auditioning re for and uh, so Ron and I got in. We, we, um, I got the role of um, All Good Gifts. Took over from this guy Dominic, can't remember his other name, and and Ron got um, George Bartel's role, but I never forget. I I, I was nearly sacked in that. Uh, from I had to do a couple of performances in Melbourne. I did this I did this performance, and at the end of it, Ken Brodziak came up to me and he said, "So," he said, "Look, you you, you, you we like you in the show. He said we want to keep you. He said, but please don't sing." like Frank Sinatra no more. He said, not, not that song. He says, you sing like Frank Sinatra. He said, don't sing it like Frank Sinatra. And I said, oh, okay. So were, then you, Betty, were you Betty, swinging all good gifts? Well, I was crooning it. <laughs> uh, and and Betty, Betty said, oh, look, it's okay, Mr. Brodziak. She said, I'll work with Sal. We'll, we'll work it through. And um, so anyway, Betty was lovely and she, she guided me through it. And... Um, and she said, just just make it a little straighter. And I worked with the musical director at the time, who's a guy called Rory Thomas. And yeah, we got there eventually. But but look, uh, then we're, then, and that's when I met Dolores and uh, Rod when we toured New Zealand. Rod was playing Jesus. He was. Yeah. We, we toured. We were meant to be there for six months. We ended up touring for nine months. I learned so much from them. Well, they were well-established pros by then, weren't they? Well, they were. And, uh, they were they, but they were the they they were the mum and dad of the company, you know. They were the go-to people when we were when we were feeling a bit lonely and miserable, and when we we're losing our way, they were always there for us. They were just wonderful. So that was that was a delightful time, just touring through New Zealand with them, doing that show. I was I was pretty much. Uh, Pretty much just having the best time. You know. So you're starting to think I may not go back to this this law job. 
Well, no, because then I get back to Sydney and I'm just about... And I'm thinking I'm out of work and then the next thing I get this call from my agent who I had then, which was... Uh, I'd I got an agent when I got back to Sydney and that was Faith Martin. And um, she said, oh, they're going to do a, um, a return Sydney season with that production. And so we came into Sydney, but they patched it up a bit. That's when Tina came in. Tina Bursal came in and did the day-by-day -day role. We ended up getting... Ron Chalner took over the role of Jesus. <laughs> he was so funny but he was good he was good and Doherty was still in it and um, and Marty Rowan came back into it so he took over all good gifts so I moved across into Ron's role which was uh, the Herb character and um, We Beseech Thee eh? We Beseech Thee is it that number? no no I didn't I didn't I didn't have a song right okay no no We Beseech Thee wasn't uh no, uh, Neil Bright was doing that number at that time. But uh, no, that character didn't have a song. He was just a comical character who did all the prodigal son stuff and light bulb and, you know, was always the one who looked like he was always one step behind everybody else, you know. Uh, yeah, so then we did the return season in Sydney and it was while I was doing that at the Rich Book, I get this call. From my agent saying, So, you've got an audition for um, this new thing called Rocky Horror. She said, uh, Because um, it should work out quite well. Because Godspell was due to finish, you know, after the Christmas season, Christmas period, and they were casting for Rocky Horror. So I go down to uh, uh, the Capitol Theatre and I audition for that. Join us next time for the companion episode to my conversation with Sal Sharar. We explore his forays into a succession of musical theatre milestones throughout his career, commencing with The Rocky Horror Show, Ned Kelly, Guys and Dolls and Sunset Boulevard, as well as reflecting on the challenges facing an artist while navigating a precarious industry. That's next time on Stages. Sal and I look forward to your company then. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. And I'll catch you next time on Stages. <laughs>